This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Chris Marvin is the principal for Marvin Strategies, a strategic communications firm that constructs narratives to change minds and solve social issues. He served for seven years as a U.S. Army officer and Black Hawk helicopter pilot and as a combat-wounded veteran of the war in Afghanistan. Chris relies on professional experience that combines military service, entrepreneurship, and social innovation. He's led multiple efforts to create large-scale cultural change through collaboration between nonprofits, government, foundations, media, and corporations. Chris founded the Got Your Six campaign to advocate for accurate portrayals of military veterans in film, television, and popular media. You can check out the podcast he's produced very recently. It's called Reclaiming Patriotism on Crooked Media. It's fantastic. I strongly recommend this four-episode podcast. His PBS documentary short, Almost Sunrise, and his work with Every Town for Gun Safety and Moms Demand Action. We talk about all this on the episode that follows. Chris holds a bachelor's degree from the University of Notre Dame and an MBA from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, where he was my student, I am proud and happy to say. Based in Honolulu, Marvin Strategies is certified by the Small Business Association as a service-disabled, veteran-owned small business. In this episode, we talk about the anniversary of 9-11 and its meaning. This conversation took place on the eve of 9-11, 2019. Chris's military service, how veterans are civic assets, and how we could all become more engaged and better citizens. We talk about the meaning of patriotism, what it means to embody American values, why it makes sense for us to make service a new cultural norm in our society, and how the gun culture in America differs so drastically from the military's values and beliefs about weapons. I hope you like the Work and Life podcast, and if you do, I would much appreciate it if you would just rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, so others are more likely to find it and enjoy it as well. Now, get set to listen to and learn from Chris Marvin, a wounded warrior, proud Wharton alum, engaged citizen, and a true patriot, someone who has much to teach us about healing our broken world. Chris Marvin, welcome back to Work and Life. Hi, Stu. It's really great to be here with you. Thank you for uh, and, and uh, probably inappropriate long introduction. No, no, no. It's, a, <laughs> it's all it. <laughs> true. Um, it's it's really great to have you here. Um, you've had an extraordinary career from where I sit. Uh, when I first met you as a student in my class here, I guess that's about ten years ago. Um, the class on total leadership. You'd already served. I think it was seven years as a U.S. Army officer, where you were a Black Hawk pilot severely wounded in combat in Afghanistan, and your rehabilitation, body and soul, I would say, maybe you disagree, was facilitated by the Mission Continues, which is an organization founded by another veteran to help others. And you've been able, uh, in, in, in really a remarkable fashion, throughout your post-military career to create work about which you're not only passionate but it also honors your commitment to your family as well as our society. So uh, I think you know here we are on September 10th on the eve of uh, this important anniversary uh, for our nation. Now, 18 years ago since 9/11, and uh, it's it's just great to have you 
on the conversation. So thanks for being here. Um, maybe we can start with with what the meaning of this anniversary has for you. Um, how do you think about 9-11 now? Uh, and, and how does that reflect how your fellow veterans uh, think about that history and what it means for us today? Yeah, that's actually a really interesting question, Stu. I, I would tell you that, that when I first went to Afghanistan, and I went in, in uh, April of 2004, uh, you know, we were only, what, two and a half years removed from the attacks on the Twin Towers and the Pentagon and the plane in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and it felt it felt good to me in a way. It felt like I was doing something that was purposeful, that was justified, that was what I had trained for, what all the service members, soldiers around me had trained for. And, you, you know, you, you get to put all of that, um, all that training and all of that, uh, the buildup that you know that you do in the military, put that into practice. That 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 says something alone. But it was mm-hmm. it felt justified, right? It felt like we were defending our our nation. Um, I, I'll I'll add to that, however, that even at that time, um, and and if folks can even remember back that far, you know, we had about 10,000 U.S. combat troops in Afghanistan in April 2004, um, and that's less than there are now. Um, there's I think there's 14, 15,000 there now. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, and we had over a hundred thousand in Iraq already, about a year into the Iraq War. And so, I went at a time where it was starting to be um, that war, the Afghanistan War, was overshadowed uh, by the weapons of mass destruction and Saddam Hussein and all of that. And and and, and through mm-hmm. the years, that's changed, and and the, the number of troop levels have ebbed and flowed and and whatnot. And obviously, Iraq is very different now. Um, but what I would say about the anniversary of 9-11, if mm-hmm. you consider it to be the genesis of um, any of these conflicts, but certainly the combat operations in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. what I think about now is it's been 18 years and we're still there. Mm-hmm. And so it's really shifted for me, as has, has, you know, less to do with my personal participation, of course, being a veteran and a combat veteran uh, gives me a um, a, 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 you know, a box to stand on here, but with with regard to you know society's role in war and the way that our government and our military conducts itself and and what what we do from a foreign relations standpoint and from mm-hmm. an interventionist standpoint, the idea that we have um, been there for 18 years is 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 remarkable and 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 quite frankly confounding for me because we have yet to reauthorize the use of military force that we authorized four or five days or however many days it was after 9-11-2001. We've been sitting on this same congressional legislation or or this same act of Congress to authorize the use of military force for coming up on 18 years. And to me, that means it's a failure of democracy. It means that the fact that we can't re- reauthorize that. We can't debate again whether or not we should send our servicemen and women overseas and risk blood and treasure and, and, and put, you know, their lives and, and, and their livelihoods for the rest of their lives, you know, the rest of their lives and their families, put all of that at risk. And Congress can't even talk about it again. To me, unfortunately, 9-11 becomes that symbol of, of you know, a reminder that, that our democracy today is failing us. Hmm. Wow. I know. They may not have been the answer you expected, Stu. It's I not. Apologize, uh, but. but it makes perfect sense to me, Chris. Yeah. Uh, I get it. Um, and are you an outlier in that view, or do you find that your fellow veterans share that perspective? I mean, I, I, to the degree that people have sort of the cognitive ability to hold, you know, two different opinions at the same time, um, and they can be proud of, of their, you know, I can be proud of my service in Afghanistan. I, I, I don't regret it at all. And again, like I said, when I was there, it, was, it felt like a really good thing to do. And mm-hmm. I hope that somebody who was there last year is proud of his or her service as well. So mm-hmm. the fact that they can hold those two things mm-hmm. um, uh, in their mind at the same time, I think you'll find a lot of veterans mm-hmm. who, who would agree with me. I mean, we're not, we're not I'm not making a, a stance as to whether we should or shouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. I'm saying... Congress should debate it. Yeah. Then whatever they decide, 
great. Like, so if, if we were still there, but every year since then, they'd reauthorize that use of military force because they debated it. They, they listened to the will of their constituents. Mm-hmm. They, 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 they took all the, you know, foreign policy and national security considerations into, uh, into their decision, and they continued to authorize the use of military force. I, I'd be 100% behind it because that's how democracy is meant to work. Mm-hmm. But when we're not doing that, when, we're, when, when it feels like Congress is afraid to act in that capacity, that's when it that's when it starts to be, you know, just really disheartening, quite frankly. You know, uh, this leads me to to want to ask you about your current work, um, uh, particularly with the podcast on patriotism, <clears throat> because it seems to me it's a of a piece. But before we get to that, I wanted to ask if you were motivated to enlist uh, by what happened in, on nine eleven, or was it there some other um, source for your, you know, motivation to, to join the armed forces. Yeah, no, I was, um, I unfortunately don't get to tell that heroic story. I, I was, I was already <laughs> signed up <laughs> when the, when the planes of the towers, I, I finished my undergraduate degree in, uh, the spring of 2001. And so I had been in ROTC at the university of Notre Dame, mm-hmm. um, army ROTC. I had, and you know, I was there primarily for the scholarship, but I came from mm-hmm. a military family uh, my father was 36 years in the army, uh, with with mm. the majority of that being uh, full-time National Guard. So I didn't move around to military bases. I lived in Illinois growing up, um, but he certainly uh, served a significant p- part of his life in the army. Mm-hmm. Uh, my both of my grandfathers served in World War II. My dad actually had served in Vietnam as well. Mm. My great grandfather uh, served in World War One. Wow! And honestly, my military service. I, you know, thank, thank, thanks to Ancestry.com, because this wasn't like a family uh, history passed down year, uh, generation to generation. I've been able to do the research yeah. and learn that I, I have, um, you know, ancestors in uh, the, the Civil War, the War of 1812, and all the way back to the American Revolution. And wow. fact, uh, a Marvin, Private William Marvin, I think he's a private, um, served in the New York militia in, uh, in the Revolutionary War. So my military wow. history in my family is proud. Um, Deep. He, yeah, even if I wasn't aware of it when I signed up for ROTC. Uh-huh. But nonetheless, here I was, graduated spring of 2001, uh, waiting to report to flight school at Fort Rucker, Alabama in October. I think it was October 14th of that year was my report date. So just more than a month after 9-11. And I was um, literally working as an arborist in, uh, in my hometown in Illinois when Taking care happened. of trees. I, well, cutting them, yes, mostly, and putting the branches into chippers. Um, <laughs> okay. And uh, uh, but yeah, it was it was this, this just you know college summer work while I waited to go report to mm-hmm. uh, to active duty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I actually remember an interesting interesting fact. I remember sitting there in the days after nine eleven, like many of us, and thinking, what can I do? How can I help? Mm. What do I? How where? Do, how do I mobilize my own? you know, skills, experiences, assets to, to, to be a part of this. And that was, that's a great feeling when you have an entire nation that's sort of similarly thinking, how do I help? What do I do? Yeah. How do I pitch in? And, and that's how everybody felt, or most people right. felt that at that moment. Yeah. I think a lot of people ran down to the, the, the recruiter's office, right, as you, as, yeah. as you alluded to earlier. Um, for me, <laughs> it was one of those moments where I said, maybe I should get in my car and I should drive to New York and I should start, start sifting, sifting through the rubble and, and pulling people out. Hmm. This, that, those are the images you're seeing. Yeah. Um, and, and all of a sudden, I, I kind of you know, snapped out of it and said, in like 32 days, I'm going to be on active duty in the military. Okay, so you like, didn't realize that, there. Chris? No, of course I realized it. it just, I was caught up. I was caught up. Well, that speaks the to the power right? of the the inspiration of that moment, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, I, and up mm. to that point, I hadn't connected my my ROTC service, right, and my military training to that point with with sort of directly with that national security effort, right? And mm. of course, if I thought about it, I, I would. But but then realizing, okay, I'll be in the military in a month. That's probably my thing. That's probably what I'll do to to give back to contribute to you know, the, the response to 9-11. And mm-hmm. ultimately it was, after a few years later, after I, after I learned how to fly a Blackhawk, um, I got to take that to Afghanistan. So that, yeah. was, that was my pathway. And if, I'm sure you've told this story a million times, but for our listeners who haven't heard it, can you give us the, the, the brief version of what happened when you were in that vehicle and you were shot down? And that yeah, led to I'm, your new career, really? Right. Yeah, I, you know, so I was, um, 
wounded in a, in a Black Hawk helicopter crash near the Afghan-Pakistan border in August of 2004 after uh, four months and about 40 combat missions in Afghanistan. Um, it wasn't actually direct enemy fire. Uh, it, was, uh, it was an equipment malfunction uh, inside the cockpit that caused, hmm. uh, caused the aircraft to go down uh, in a mode of flight that was meant to be very, you know, ev- ev- evasive of, of, enemy, of the enemy. We were in a very hostile area, um, flying low to the ground and fast and, and those types of things. So um, I ended up with a broken foot, uh, two broken legs, a broken right arm. I shattered all the bones on the right side of my face, and I did severe and permanent damage to both of my hips, both of my knees, and both of my shoulders. And uh, I always tell people that, the shorter way to say that would be I broke my whole body, but you know it's more fun to list them out for dramatic effect. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> Thanks for and, doing uh, that. Yeah, and, I get and the so, picture. You know, I, yeah, <laughs> um, and I, you know, long story short, I went through through about a four-year recovery. Where I had ten major surgeries and obviously thousands of hours of physical therapy. Um, maybe more important, um, you know, the aircraft uh, was full of fifteen people, including myself that day, four crew and eleven combat-loaded Marines, um, and fourteen of us walked away and, and honestly given the conditions of, of, of the situation the other pilot not me but the other pilot who was on the controls um, he saved 14 lives that day with the with the, his ability to maneuver the aircraft uh, we unfortunately lost one of our crew chiefs sergeant daniel galvin um, and we just now passed the 15-year anniversary mm-hmm. um, of that day which which obviously um, is, is, is a difficult day but for me I, I i tend to look at it as what a lot of people call their their alive day right the day that mm. The day that I didn't die, the day that I survived, the day that, you know, you can start looking forward and saying, what else is there for me? And, and that's been the attitude in, in general that I've taken, uh, that I'm still here and, and I have a lot to do and there must be a reason for that. Chris, that that led you to a, a number of important um, post-mission missions. Um, I you know, there's there's a lot that you've been doing. I'd like to get back to where we were a few minutes ago, uh, and and your response to my question about the current significance of the the legacy of uh, the nine eleven here, eighteen years later, uh, seeing it in retrospect now as a symbol of our failed democracy that we haven't um, done the democratic. Uh, process of reauthorizing uh, support for for the mission in Afghanistan. The, you're you're doing work now on the meaning of patriotism. Uh, can you talk a bit about what that effort is and what its purpose is? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've um, it's something that I've I've talked about in, in different forms, um, in different media outlets, and, and different uh, projects in, in, over the years. Um, most most directly, uh, there's a, a podcast that I produced. Um, uh, you won't hear me on it. I'm a, I'm a behind-the-scenes guy on this one. Um, but my friend Ken Harbaugh, who is a, a Navy veteran um, and the founder of one of the co-founders of The Mission Continues, the nonprofit you mentioned earlier, uh, he was the host of the podcast. Uh, it was on Crooked Media. This is the, the, the podcasting company or the media company that uh, is famous for Pod Save America and many other great um, shows that they put out, and it aired this July. It was just a four-episode run. We did eight interviews, uh, some notable people. Um, General Stanley McChrystal was on. Um, Congress, uh, sorry, Senator um, Tulsi. Uh, sorry, Senator um, Tammy Duck, Tammy Duckworth, mm-hmm. and then Congresswoman Barbara Lee of note because she. Um, she was the single dissenting vote in that authorization of use of military force mm-hmm. uh, right after 9/11. So we talked to her about that, uh, and Mayor Pete Buttigieg was also on. So and, and a handful of really great other guests that may not be um, household names, but were really insightful folks. And and we carried on these conversations about about patriotism and what it means and what it's become uh, in sort of today's uh, you know popular culture mm-hmm. um, and this idea that. That it becomes this idea of if, if you don't if you don't think this then you're not patriotic, um, and so we actually tried to really push this idea that patriotism is so many things. Patriotism is service. Patriotism is um, dissent. Patriotism mm-hmm. is you know uh, empathy, right? And so these ideas that that when we behave like Americans, 
that's when we're patriotic, not when we behave like someone else thinks we should behave to be Americans. And really, patriotism in, the, in this form today has, for, you know, for many people, it's sort of the term has, I'll say, slipped to the right politically. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that, you know, p- patriots are, are Republicans and patriots are conservative and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and then to, to that point, a lot of liberals and Democrats and progressives have have walked away from the word and the term and the idea that that they could be patriotic because they, they think that means they they have to you know uh, you know own guns and uh, you know be anti-abortion and you know and and all the other uh, you know small government and all the other things that go with political ideologies and and we're there to say that it's it's not one or the other right it's mm-hmm. it's actually both and and many times it's a debate between the two right the two different political ideologies or or, or, or multiple political ideologies that is most patriotic right and that yes and so that's when we get back to what we were talking about with what i really want to honor the folk the, the everyone who died in 9-11 everyone who's died in afghanistan or even iraq like to honor them mm-hmm. what we need to do is to be patriotic and to have that hard conversation to have the debate in congress um, with our representatives, your representative and mine, debating against each other, uh, you know, on on what is the best course of action for for our nation and our military. And so, to me, that would be incredibly patriotic. And that's but, what we fought the wars for, is it not? You would think, yes. The but freedom we, 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 to have we, those debates and to disagree but, and to dissent. But we found that what people will say is, when I stand up and say we need to ha- we need to reauthorize or we need to redebate the authorization used in military force, yeah, you'll say. Well, that that's that's anti-patriotic, right? That's anti-military. That's and it's and I say quite the opposite, sir. You know what I mean? I I've been there. I consider myself very patriotic. I have my own political leanings and ideologies, and and that actually doesn't matter. I love this country, and you know that's what that's what being patriotic is. And I don't, you know, I don't only love this country because my family happens to have fought in the revolution and been here since 1635. You know, it's 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 actually. You know, I would love this country just as much if my parents immigrated here or if, or I probably I might love this country more or I, I've certainly seen people who love this country more who are immigrants themselves and naturalized citizens. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's a whole other conversation there about what does it mean to um, what does it mean to be patriotic? And a lot of times you'll find, you know, a Guatemalan immigrant who waited and worked and earned green cards and went through the naturalization process and earned that citizenship that probably values you know, his American citizenship more than the guy that was just born with it. Oh, no, I I completely understand that. I I can recall vividly carrying my grandmother's casket uh, at her funeral, and we sang God Bless America, which was her favorite song. Uh, because uh, you know of her, I mean, she was she was an immigrant and uh, you know deeply, deeply loved this country and all that it gave her and her family. So I can relate to that personally, and uh, of course, it makes perfect sense. So, so what's gone wrong, and how has your your podcast with Harbaugh? Give us the name of it again. Uh, it's called Reclaiming Patriotism. It's actually part of the uh, cro- um, Crooked Conversations. So. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you can find it on Crooked Media. I think if you just maybe Google "reclaiming patriotism," you'll reclaiming you'll find it. patriotism. Yeah, it's it's four episodes, so you know you know your listeners should go out and they can consume the whole thing in the time and take them to watch a movie, and, and they'll be better for it. I hope. I agree a hundred percent, having done so. Uh, so tell me, uh, tell us what's been the what's been the impact? What's what's been the response to to that series? You know, it's it's been it's been a great response. Um, you know, the you know, uh, t- talking to Crooked, obviously the numbers are great, and and, and oh. people um, people listen to the podcast, which is the first the first step. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we haven't had it just aired in July, so we're we're just a month removed, and and sort of figuring out what might be follow on opportunities, right, to continue this conversation. Oh. This conversation doesn't we didn't we don't intend this to exist exclusively in a in a four episode you know podcast. We we want this conversation to exist all, all over the place, and, and at the national level, and at the local level, and so it's just figuring out what that really means. And, 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 and it's really, as I said, it, it carries forward some other work that I've done. I, you know, I, I helped produce a, a documentary um, short for PBS uh, that, that examined uh, society's role in war um, around the idea of moral injury and, and, and military veterans who experience moral injury 
Um, I wrote a, what, what was that for called? The Washington, but, oh, um, the the documentary short. Yeah. Um, that aired along with a film called Almost Sunrise uh, by our, uh, a friend of mine who's an Emmy Award-winning, actually Emmy-nominated, sorry, Emmy-nominated for that film, uh, producer Michael Collins. It was about two veterans who, who walked across the country. Um, hmm. And so if you look up Almost Sunrise on PBS's website, you should be able to find all the everything else that's attached to that. And then I also, once upon a time, wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post that I sort of snarkily entitled... Um, uh, you're welcome for my service. Um, and it was, it was meant to obviously get people to click on it, mm-hmm. but it was this idea that like, we have created this really interesting culture around military service and around people's obligation to say thank you for your service. And I kind of want to get past that and say, look, you're welcome for my service. Can, you, can we have a deeper conversation? And mm-hmm. to me, again, that's patriotism. That's what, that's what we're trying to... Um, you know, try, trying to get people to understand that, that having these deeper conversations and understanding uh, what's happening as citizens, as patriots, as patriots, as people who support the military, um, it's way more nuanced than thank you for your service. So, so mm. again, over the years, lots of different places to try to interject this and to try to start these conversations. And I'm not sure what the next one is going to be yet, but I'm always oh. on the lookout for it. Hmm. I think there's a bunch of students here at your alma mater who could... Uh, <laughs> who could benefit from being a part of a conversation that you might instigate. Chris, what do you think? Have you? I'd, I'd love to. That, yeah, that, I, that I hasn't do make happened my way recently. back about once a year, and, uh-huh. I, and I, I get, I, I'm a privileged to guest lecture in a marketing class once a year, and that's, that's coming up relatively soon. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I think there's, uh, you know, uh, I think that at college campuses and, and places of higher learning are, are, are incredible locations for these conversations and these debates. It's, it's a place where we, you know, typically as a society, we've been free to, to have these types of conversations. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, I, and I think it's a great place to do it. And I know folks who are doing that at, mm-hmm. at places like, uh, I have a good friend who does it at, uh, at Columbia. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and I'm, I'm sure many, many universities have, sure. have these platforms. So Chris, just before the break, we were talking about um, students uh, on campus today, as as a you know, the college campus is a, is is of course ripe for debate. We're built for that. All our structures are designed to encourage creative thinking and and the contest of ideas. What's your sense of how kids are thinking these days about the meaning of patriotism? I wow, that's a good. <laughs> I I don't know how much they're thinking about it. I would be interested mm. to find out. Quite mm-hmm. frankly, and, 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 and you know, Stu, you're much closer to the source there. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you know, I think um, I think we have created a well. One of the things that I talked about a lot uh, in the work that I did at uh, the nonprofit I started after after business school, um, which what, what we were working on was the way veterans were portrayed in film and television, and generally in sort of popular media. And that was got your sex, about, right? That's right. That's right. That was Guy Your Six. So we worked with the entertainment industry and a coalition of nonprofits uh, and, and, and government entities and corporations to, to try to really shift the narrative on veterans from that of veterans being seen as, as you know, broken or damaged to veterans being seen as leaders and civic assets. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons we cited for that, that dissonance was the civilian-military divide. Um, and so I think that um, there isn't uh, – there is, there's there, there sometimes – are places where there is not a great opportunity for individuals, depending on sort of where they were brought up and how they were brought up and what they were exposed to, to really have uh, a well-rounded view of something like patriotism or something like service uh, or something like citizenship. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of thoughts on, on what could be done about this. Um, I've sat in rooms. I did some work for the Bipartisan Policy Center where we actually talked about a lot of interesting solutions that would have that would lead to better, uh, better military recruiting. Right, getting a, you know, even a high, we have a we have an incredibly high caliber caliber military, mm-hmm. but how do we continue to ensure that we're getting some of the best Americans who have the, the you know the best skills and patriotism and dedication to, to service in their country uh, to to spend time in the military if they're not exposed to it. Right, I was exposed to it, uh, even though I grew up in Central Illinois and, and didn't you know spend much time on military bases. My, my father wore a uniform when he went mm-hmm. uh, to his National Guard duties and things like that. So at the very least, I was exposed to that. 
um, and therefore I did ROTC. Uh, but a lot of people don't have that opportunity. So maybe when they get to their college campus, they're seeing, they're seeing those guys walking around in those ROTC uniforms, and that's the first time they feel like close to, you know, close to camouflage, and, 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 it, and it may uh, jar them in certain ways, depending mm-hmm. on what part of the country they, they grew up in. Mm-hmm. But what we, used to t- what we talked about at the Bipartisan Policy Center with, with, with regard to um, military sort of you know, HR, essentially, um, is, is that we need to provide opportunities for young people to be exposed to opportunities for service. That can be military service, it could be national service, it could be the Peace Corps, um, it could be Teach for America, it could be a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so how do you incentivize that and what do you do? And one of the ideas we talked about that was really interesting that I, that I think some people politically would object to, but I don't know sort of in principle why anybody would object to this. Um, but that is that when you... Um, you know, when you when you register for the draft, you're also registering to vote. Um, because it, and and this, by the way, only works if um, females are required to register for the draft. Because currently, and we're working, people are working on this, but currently they aren't. Currently, only men are, and that used to be because of females are excluded from certain combat roles. And if we right. if we are if we are bringing them into, um, you know, certain we, we, they're now there's combat inclusion. All, all females are allowed in all combat roles. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we should have a gender neutral draft, right? So we create this gender neutral draft. Everybody has to register for it. Um, and and really, draft's the wrong word. I should call it selective service, right? Because that's what it's called, the selective service system. You create this gender neutral selective service, uh, and then when you register for that, which is you know punishable by by law if you don't. Um, and it just puts your name in a, on a list somewhere. You just go on an Excel spreadsheet somewhere. That's all it's doing. They're not, they're not drafting you. They're, you're, just, you're just on a list. We know you exist. We know where you live. We have a good address. Mm-hmm. Um, you also registered to, 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 uh, to vote, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so you get a lot more young people registered to vote. Now, they still have to go to the polls and vote, but it's another civic participation yeah. task. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can also tell them that, like, hey, you can use this system to find other ways to serve. We can start really thinking about selective service in its true uh, sort of moniker of selective service, not military, not necessarily conscription, but we can use it for all types of things. So getting people fed into national service, AmeriCorps, Peace Corps, et cetera. And then also... Why not require you know, it? I, I, I require national service? Yeah. Or some, some form of service? Yeah. Where, I would where do you stand on that? Of it. I would, I, I'm very supportive of it in, in theory. Financially, we'd, as a nation, we don't, we can't, we don't have the the, the will or the wherewithal to do it. Um, we, in 2000, let me get the year right, um, in 2009, because it was the beginning of the Obama administration, we signed the Edward M. Kennedy, he signed the Edward M. Kennedy Serve America Act, which tripled the size of AmeriCorps from about, uh, I think from about 75,000 people to 225 or maybe 250,000 people. Um, that's never happened. It's, AmeriCorps is still about 80,000 people a year mm-hmm. because no one ever funded it, right? So if we could find the, the, the financial political will to fund service like that or create a method by which it didn't have to be funded by the federal government, and then you sort of get in this debate as to whether it really is national service, if mm-hmm. it's privately funded, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a long, it's a long debate. But I, I think that what many people, including General McChrystal, have have proposed is we need to create uh, a cultural norm um, and we need to create space for where it becomes normal for someone to take a year off between high school and absolutely college. i agree 100 percent. right and so if a you're lot, listening a lot, of, a lot of stones on that pathway Stu, but yes. like ultimately mo- moving towards a place where people feel compelled to serve in some form and fashion and a lot of ways to do it and they're, they're really interesting what a great leveler and and a way to break the barriers that you were just describing that you that you and your work try to to uh, to overcome the, the divide between citizen and uh, and warrior uh, between you know citizens of all stripes in this day when there's just so much uh, dividing us to have everyone every young person at 18 years old committed to having to do some service for America I mean how, where who disagrees with that you know I, people. Degree with the word compulsory when you put that in there. That's what it is. It's like you can't make me do anything I don't want to do. And even though they might want to do yeah. it, it's the it's the idea that they're forced to. But I've even proposed, uh, and and this was in the report we put out for the bipartisan policy center, um, that we have every and I think you probably only do it in public high schools, but every high school senior or junior uh, should should take an army vocational 
uh, aptitude test, right? Or mm-hmm. military, uh, armed forces vocational aptitude test. Um, I think there's a new name for it now, but, but it's, it's basically the test that everybody takes before basic training that says, here's, this, you know, here's what you might be good at in the military. Now, this doesn't mean that kid's got to join the military, but it means you put in front of him a test score that says, if you did join the military, you might make a good mechanic on you know, F-18s. Mm-hmm. And then you might have a kid that lights up and says, that sounds fun. I should do that. Mm-hmm. You're exposing him to military service right then and there mm-hmm. um, in, in a way that you know, we're not doing now as a nation. Well, and to get you know everyone to be thinking about, all right, I'm I'm now reaching the age of majority. There are many great benefits to being a part of this wonderful society. I, I have an obligation to serve that society if it's going to thrive. What can I do? And it, of course, doesn't have to be the military. There are many ways that you mentioned, and others that young people can indeed, uh, I, I certainly believe, should serve. That's right. um, and uh, so, you're, so McChrystal is an advocate of that, and there are many others. Um, what have what has been you know, sort of your journey uh, now uh, in terms of what your you know the, the conversations about patriotism? How does that sort of weave into uh, the work that you're doing now, uh, or more contemplating with respect to taking you know what what you launched with the podcast and moving forward? Uh, to create a richer conversation about the meaning of patriotism today? Um, I, I just think, I think it's all based in citizenship and civic engagement. And as I said before, when, we, when I was at Got Your Six, the, the, the thing that we talked about the most was veterans are leaders in civic assets. And, uh, and one of the things we did, we, we could prove that they were leaders, right? We could always say veterans are leaders because they have had federally subsidized leadership training. And let's just make the assumption that for the majority of them, that leadership training stuck somehow. <laughs> They're better leaders because of their time in the military at a you know, 95, 99% of the time, right? What I couldn't prove, though, uh, when I kept telling people veterans are leaders in civic assets, I didn't have the empirical evidence to say that they were civic assets until we worked with the National Conference on Citizenship and created a Veteran Civic Health Index. And we were able to actually show that veterans are, um, sorry, the, the Civic Health Index is something that they do usually for cities. Mm-hmm. And they'll look at how civically engaged the citizens of a specific city are and mm-hmm. compare what Seattle is like to what Atlanta is like or something like that. We did it for, instead of a, a geographic uh, designation, we did it for a demographic designation in veterans. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, 21, 22 million living American veterans at the time. Um, and we found that veterans are more likely, using census data, found that veterans are more likely to vote and to volunteer in their communities and to talk to their neighbors and to help their neighbors and to belong to civic organizations. Mm-hmm. And like across the board, just slightly more likely. But you found that because you, you, you could sort of pull out that correlation and, make it, make, and make, start to make assumptions about causality that, that this, this shows that veterans, because of their military service, are better citizens in a sense. Right. right? Not, not every single one, mm-hmm. but on, of on course. the average. No, but um, and, and I think that's a big deal. Um, I think it's something we should all strive for and, and just like having those types of conversations. And, 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 and maybe what you're asking is this idea that what we're trying to create is a nation full of good citizens. Yes. However you want to define that, mm-hmm. it literally could mean helping your neighbor, pulling that garbage can you know, back for the elderly woman who lives next door to you mm-hmm. on garbage day mm-hmm. versus signing up you know, for a term of enlistment in the military. Those are all ways in which you can exhibit you know, good citizenship. And Absolutely. Don't we, don't we just want to live in a country where everybody can be a good citizen? We do. Right? We do. Um, and and I, I want to make sure we have some time for what you're working on with respect to gun violence. Yeah. Uh, tell us about what you're what you're doing these days on that issue. Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's a passion of mine, and and, and I feel like you know, getting getting more and more into the conversation about work and life, like that's. You, know, you mentioned in the open that I that I, I, I moved back to Hawaii, and I'd been in Hawaii before Wharton. Uh, the military brought me here. Um, I moved back here um, three years ago after you know seven years in Philadelphia. I did stick around Philly, as you know, and, and love Philadelphia. Yeah. Sometimes. All right. Um, but but Hawaii was became home for uh, myself and my family, and you know, I met my wife out here, and um, and 
you know, we settled back here, and, and, and my business would be better, quite frankly, if I lived in New York or D.C. or mm-hmm. Philadelphia or even Chicago or L.A., um, but, but I want to be here, and so I make it work. I get up for 5 a.m. phone calls, <laughs> um, <laughs> sometimes earlier, mm-hmm. um, but regularly 5 a.m. phone calls. It's mm-hmm. 11 o'clock on the East Coast, mm-hmm. um, and, and I serve clients in, in, all over the country, but primarily you know, on the East Coast, the West Coast. Um, and, and, and so that works. And one of those clients is uh, Every Town for Gun Safety and Moms Demand Action, which is the largest gun violence prevention organization in the nation. Um, and they primarily operate out of New York and D.C., but of course, mm-hmm. Moms Demand Action has chapters in um, all 50 states plus D.C. and you know, uh, tens of thousands of volunteers all over the country. Um, and they're powerful. If you have anybody who's ever, you know, worked or seen gun violence prevention rallies or in that in that field, like you know what those red shirts to say moms demand action on them that mean when they show up at the state capitol and they're gonna, you know, have a certain view on, on some, you know, gun violence prevention legislation. So that's it's really an honor to work with them, um, in this army of volunteers. Um, mm-hmm. a, um but my role has been actually to integrate the veteran strategy into everything they do. Right. Uh-huh. So how are they thinking about veterans? How are they utilizing veterans in gun violence prevention work? Mm-hmm. So, you know, many people might come with, a, with this assumption that veterans, because they come from a profession, profession of arms, have a specific view on guns, and they might think it is a very politically conservative view that mm-hmm. is you know, in line with the NRA, that they are gun owners and, you know, strong, you know, loose interpretation of Second Amendment supporters, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. And mm-hmm. I find it actually to be not true at, at all. Really? Right? There's, of, course, there's, of course there's liberal veterans, right, and progressive veterans who are just, you know, would say, I, I, I know a veteran who says that we should repeal the Second Amendment, right? That's her view. Um, that's fine. Um, you know, there's always middle ground. <laughs> what, what most veterans occupy is that middle ground. And what most veterans um, say is, and what, what the way we've sort of articulated it at every town is in the military, first of all, we were respected. We're, as veterans, we're respected for our service. Um, and we're trusted for our opinions on guns because we come from a, 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 a profession of arms. Uh, but, but secondly, um, in the military, we had a gun culture that was th- th- thriving, right? That was successful, that works, that keeps people safe and utilizes guns in the way that they're meant to be used for our purposes. And that was built on three things, which is training, safety, and accountability. And when I say those three words to any veteran, I get up and down nods with the head. Like, yep, yep, training, safety, accountability, that is how I learned to, to use my service weapon or whatever weapons platform I was using. This always, those three things are fundamental to what we do around uh, any weapons in the military. And Define cr- uh, accountability in this context for us. Responsibility might be a better word, but like being, being responsible for what happens with the weapon that you possess, mm-hmm. right? So that means keeping keeping it on your person right so not not letting it not sit not letting it sit around and get taken by someone else mm-hmm. but also with you know the uh, whatever is discharged from that weapon so you know the bullets that come out of your gun quite frankly um are are, are you're accountable for those you know where they're going and, and when you're firing them and why mm-hmm. um and so veterans will look at our civilian gun culture and they see none of those things they right. see this ultra permissive gun culture that is, has no recognition to the pretty strict gun culture that the military employs, and it, it, it baffles us. And so no matter which wow. way you lean politically, you're looking at some of these gun laws or loopholes or lack of laws and saying, no, we should probably have it be more like the military. Uh, background checks. You know, we should probably have mandatory background checks on all, uh, all, all, the, all gun sales everywhere in every state. Right? So because certainly any, anyone who is employed in the military has a background check before they can bear arms, correct? Before we even get there, right? Before, <laughs> before we can put on the uniform, let alone touch a weapon, before we show the basic training, that background check is done. Right. right? And then safety is a huge part of our basic training. And, all tra- and uh, uh, there's veterans right now listening, rolling their eyes, because safety is so overly indulged in the military. You get a safety briefing every weekend. Everything you do has a safety briefing and a safety officer. It's so you're it, sick it, of it. You're sick of it, but to the point that it works, mm-hmm. right? It keeps people safe most of the time. I mean, why are they, they're rolling their eyes because, yes, of course, that's all we did. Yes, exactly. That sort exactly. of mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you, do, you, do, you do start to be like, you know, I don't know if I need another safety briefing this Friday, but, but okay, go ahead, mm-hmm. Major, go ahead. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I mean, so, 
so and then of course accountability like we are we are ultimately responsible um, uh, for for everything that happens with our weapon and everything that discharges from our weapon um, and that is not the case almost anywhere in the United States these days with you know stand your ground laws and um, and and you know online sales with no background checks and so it's just it's it's a it's a it's a little bit of a wild wild west and I've I've just found that veterans across the political spectrum are able to come together on this and say we need better gun laws hmm. and so, so using that veteran voice yeah uh, is 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 sort of the trick it's the secret sauce it says hey you know th- this is these are people and a voice that that will actually help drive this conversation forward from the middle. Right, not from the left or the right, but from a place that makes sense. Well, and, credi- uh, and credible messengers as well because right. of their history and what they stand for. Yeah, and then convincing veterans that they have a role here. Mm. Right? Like, like, you know, you, you don't just, as a veteran, as someone who's served, you don't get to just look at something that's wrong and then walk past it. Right? You don't, you don't walk past the, the, the litter on the ground and leave it there. You pick it up and you put it in the trash can. Right? And so same thing when it comes to the, you know, our, our gun laws. Like, you know something about this. Right? So, hmm. so stand up and speak and, and tell your neighbor that if he has a, a pistol, that he should store it safely where his kids can't get to it. Right? Mm-hmm. And you, just as an individual veteran, can have an impact there and could save a life. So you'll never know you saved, but you can save a life by employing what you learned in the military about training, safety, mm-hmm. and accountability. So that's the narrative we've woven for. And how's it going? It's been successful. Really great. Um, we're about, I've been working there for about two years as a consultant and, um, um, and, and can manage it from, from my home in Hawaii. And I, just, I, I travel a lot, so I'm a week a month on the mainland to do that um, but, uh, and, and, and handle a couple other clients. Um, but it, it's been successful thus far. And we have a National Veteran Advisory Council, which is a group of two dozen veterans who are helping to advise every town and all the things we're talking about and continuing to come up with novel ideas and inter- interventions that will that will help. And of course, you know, we're at a time right now when gun violence prevention is a major topic of political conversation across the board, right? Certainly mm-hmm. even in the last month after El Paso and Dayton and Odessa and I could, you know, Gilroy, I could go on, right? There's just too Unfortunately, many you could. So. so are you going to get involved in the national political election? Uh, me personally, no. Um, of course, every town for gun safety has. We work mostly with the 501c3 side, or I do, mm-hmm. uh, with the nonprofit side. But they have their own, um, uh, you know, lobbying arm and uh, 501c4 um, and uh, entity. And I, you know, they're they're becoming a major political player um, on at, at the same order that the NRA has been, right, from a financial standpoint, mm-hmm. right. So that. That hopefully will will help turn some tides. If it really, if money, you know, you hate to be cynical, but if money is what really drives politics, that's that's the direction the gun violence prevention is moving now too, um, and and that's great too. I have I have nothing to do with mm-hmm. fundraising or the allocation of those dollars from a political standpoint, but um, but if it makes a difference and we can help build narrative behind it, that's that's what I get excited about. Chris, we are uh, approaching the end of the hour here, and there's so much more I want to ask you about, but unfortunately, our, our time is, is waning. Uh, tell us, how can people learn more about the initiatives that you're working on these days, and, and not only learn about it, but perhaps find ways to support it? Uh, well, MarvinStrategies.com is my website, um, and right there you can actually access um, Voices of Resilience, the PBS mini-doc that we talked about earlier, as well as Reclaiming Patriotism, the podcast. So I think I told people earlier to, to, to Google, but just, just go to MarvinStrategies.com and mm-hmm. Reclaiming Patriotism is right there. Um, and so you can start to see some of the, some of the media that's produced, and I, and I think that your, your audience will definitely enjoy uh, all, all of that. Um, For sure. Um, and, 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 you know, of course, you know, there's, there's ways to reach me there, too. So if, if folks are interested in learning more about how uh, how Marvin Strategies works to to create these narratives, uh, to change minds, and to you know make social change. Then uh, you know I'm I'm more than willing to to talk to folks about what type of social change they want to make. I've I've really evolved from doing just veterans work um, to then bringing veterans work into other issues I care about, and now moving towards issues I care about that have nothing to do with veterans, and the veterans aren't involved at all. And I can just you know think about those things as well. Hmm. Um, and so it's. Um, you know, renewable energy is one of the places I've been dabbling in the past couple of years, and uh, it's great because it just allows me to, to 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 build on my mantra when I built my business. And Stu, I think you'll appreciate this more than most: is that um, the 
the, the two most important things about my clients and when I select my clients is that uh, they're people that I want to work with and they are working on issues that I care about. And as long as they meet those two criteria, then I'll work with them. Um, the third one probably being I should be able to add some value to what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> and the fourth one being, you know, they can pay me because uh, I do need to feed my family. But, but the first two are the most important, the issues I care about and people I want to work with. And if, they, if you get those two, we'll find a way to work together. Um, and that's been really – that's probably something, honestly, I took – out of your classroom, and so I have you to thank for that, Stu. I really, I really appreciate you know, oh, wow. the, the total leadership view on life, and and I hope that I've just just done a little bit to try to exemplify that. You've done it in a massive way, and it's uh, it's a, it's a privilege to have known you these years, and I look forward to continuing the dialogue, Chris Marvin. Thank you so much for spending the hour with us. I really appreciate it, and everything that you're doing with your work and the rest of your life. Truly, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Stu. I hope you found my conversation with Chris Marvin to be inspiring and instructive as I did. Here then is a challenge for you, an invitation. What new action might you take, something you can somehow fit into your life right now? Large or small, could be really small, that you consciously and deliberately design to be in service to your community or our society, and that might also benefit you in your work or career or at school and in your home or family life and in your own sense of yourself, your purpose in life. Let me know what you come up with. I would love to hear from you and what happens as you not only imagine, but take action to bring that idea into your life, into our world. You can write to me, friedman.wharton.upenn.edu, or find me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Wharton Business Radio. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. For more about this episode's guest and about previous guests, visit workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership. Be a better leader, have a richer life. If you like this podcast... Please subscribe, rate it on iTunes, and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.